and ghouls welcome to a very special interview episode of dads from the crypt today we're talking to david mcgifford who has worked on projects such as tootsie the back to the future trilogy rain man who frame roger rabbit and the classic tales of the crypt episode and all through the house welcome to the podcast thank you i'm so glad to be here great to have you all right so let's uh, let's start off from the beginning where are you from well, originally born in New York State, moved to Los Angeles um, when I was about six years old. So basically, I'm a Los Angelino. Nice. Yep. Um, and then what were the first movies you remember seeing growing up? Wow. I think Roy Rogers movies. Um, uh, I, I was a big fan of Roy Rogers for some reason. I can't even remember now. And uh, those are the movies I remember the most. Um, I'm, you know, when I was young, there were even radio shows that I listened to. So I'm kind of dating myself, which is fine. I don't really care. But, um, you know, I remember things like Sky King radio shows that got me wound up into Westerns. And then I mm -hmm. think I liked uh, Roy Rogers because of that. And then I remember King Solomon's Mines. Yeah, I was I was really into that one, too. I thought that was a terrific movie. It's funny because whenever someone says Roy Rogers as an 80s kid, I just think of the uh, the chicken place. <laughs> Which I don't know if that was, was, did they have those on the West Coast? I grew up on the East Coast. Um, I, I don't remember, but it, it sounds right. It all sounds right. Yeah, it might, be, it might have been the East Coast thing when I was a kid. Uh, uh, but there was like a chain called Ray Rogers Chicken. That's funny. Um, all right. And then how did you get into the film business? Well, um, completely by accident. I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do while I was going to UCLA. Mm -hmm. And then I left UCLA after three and a half years and was working in a clothing store. It's no kidding. But a friend of mine that I'd gone to college with had gone to SC Film School. And he called me one night and said, hey, how would you like to um, come to work with me on a film? How would you like to be the second assistant director on a movie? Um, and I said, what is the second assistant director? I had absolutely <laughs> no clue. I've right. never in a million years considered the film industry on any level other than paying my money and going in to watch a movie. He said, you don't even have to worry about that. He said, you'd be working for me and I'll tell you what to do. He said, but it's pretty cool. You, you might like it. I, I went to movie on a, uh, work on a movie called, I went to work on a movie called Saturation 70, being directed by a guy named Tony Fouts. Uh, the movie was never released, but a week after I started work, this friend of mine quit over a salary dispute. And this is the way my whole life has gone. I'm not kidding you. And I was made the first assistant director on a movie where I had absolutely no idea what I was doing or what I was supposed to do. And Tony Fouts, when he had graduated high school, moved to Italy and worked with Pata Corvico and these other Italian directors as the first assistant director. So he said, look, I'll try to tell you what I need if you can keep up great. If you can't, I've got to get somebody who can help me. And I faked my way through the last probably six weeks of shooting. 
and I mean faked. Wow. And then I began to get a series of production assistant jobs. Um, I got the job as a production assistant on a movie that Peter Fonda was directing in Idaho called Idaho Transfer. It was in Idaho and the interiors were going to be shot in Seattle. And they hired me as the in-town production assistant to catch the dailies at the airport, take them to the lab, take them back to the airport, send them up so they could see them. Two weeks into shooting that film, they were in Seattle and the production office called me and said, "Um, we've had a problem. Peter wants to know if you could fly up tomorrow and take over the show as the assistant director. The guy who they had hired initially for the assistant director was the same guy that first hired me on that first show. Are you kidding? And I never saw him again. Wow. So that's what happened. I I did that film. I learned a lot. And then I met another series of mentors and people that I got along with. And I got PA work and um, non-union assistant director work. So you had no, so basically twice you fell into the job without really. I've been following my whole career. (laughs) That's amazing. That's the kind of thing that can't happen now. Um, I think just the the talent pool is too big. Um, It's very unusual, I think. But when when I, um, I got my big, my big huge break was getting the job as a location scout on King De Laurentiis' King Kong mm. in 1975. Mm-hmm. The production manager on that show said, look, kid, you have enough days um, to, you know, petition the Directors Guild to get in as an assistant director. Um, you should do it. This show's got a lot going on. Um, you should try. I did. They turned me down. So I hired a lawyer. And it turned out to be the only lawyer in Los Angeles the only lawyer in Los Angeles that knew how to correctly petition the director's guild to have them have to give me a hearing. And then three producers that I'd worked with before that came with me as witnesses, talked on my behalf, and I sued my way into the director's guild. Wow. The director's guild hired my lawyer. So that closed off that avenue. Uh Uh-huh. And I wound up taking over as the first assistant director in New York City, in the World Trade Center, on King Kong. Wow. I'd been working nights on the second assistant, uh, on the, um, sorry, I'd been working nights on the second unit, doing plate shots from helicopters and second unit shots around New York. So I was asleep at 10 o'clock in the morning when Dino De Laurentiis' secretary called me and asked me if I could come down to his office at noon. And I panicked. I thought I'd been fired. And I walked into his office in the Gulf Western building. Um, And the director, John Gilliman, was sitting there, two production managers, Dino's partner, and Dino behind this gigantic desk, this little man behind a desk, you know. Mm-hmm. And he cleared a throat and asked me if I would take over the first unit that night um, that they'd had a problem. And would I consider doing it? Uh, you know, I, <laughs> I staggered out of the door being told that I was the first AD. 
Wow. So can we, let's get some of the nomenclature down a little bit. So can you explain to us first AD, second unit, assistant director? Okay. Well, so, the first assistant director, you want to know what he does? He basically runs the shooting set, schedules the film. Um, a, a huge responsibility that's very little talked about is that he's responsible for the safety, the physical safety of everybody on the cast and crew on the set. Hmm. Um, it's a very active job that you, you don't stop during the day or you shouldn't. Um, you always have to have something in mind in case something goes wrong and things always go wrong. You always have to have alternative plans to drop in. Um, it's a people job. It's not particularly technical except for all the scheduling and, and all that stuff. And I loved it I, because it just appealed to um, I've got like fast twitch muscles, you know, so I like things that are that are fast moving. And mm -hmm. I, I, this is fast moving. Mm -hmm. So then what the so I, I, just to just to uh, clarify, especially for our listeners. So and how does that compare to a second unit than the assistant director? Or well, it's the same thing. Um, okay. a, a first unit is the main unit with the main cast and the movie's director. Um, they shoot, obviously, the, the important scenes. A second unit shoots things that maybe don't involve the cast, don't need the first unit director there, but shots that are then used later in the show. You could do special effects shots sometimes, blue mm. screen shots, um, or shots like oh. in New York, we did things like troops coming across a bridge in Manhattan. That's just a, a crowd scene. It doesn't need anything specific. So the second unit director and the second unit assistant director do that shooting. That's a whole complete and separate unit. Right. I remember I was watching the, doc the documentary about the making of Lord of the Rings. And they had like six, seven second oh, yes. units. Well, well that, that running all over course. New Zealand. Yeah, I mean, that, that this was uh, for the time, 1975-76, was a gargantuan unit. It really was. There were really hundreds and hundreds of people. They had probably two or three units going all the time, and sometimes more, depending on the workload and the things that needed to be done. So w when I was finally given a job on the second unit as the first assistant director, the production manager, a man named Jack Grossberg, said, look, he said, you go in there and ask a lot of questions, he says, because you're going to the most expensive film school that's ever been given in the history of films. Wow. That's what he Yeah, because, I mean, I think that was pre-Star Wars, <clears throat> so I think that was like the, or one of the biggest blockbusters, you know. Well, was... it was. I mean, a lot of people had varying opinions on it. Um, it, it had a lot going on. It had a lot of, of different kinds of things to learn. You know, I didn't know anything about special effects. I hardly knew about filming. Um, and they had uh, so many things. So I was put in all these different units. I got to meet this 900 foot long um, freighter in the Catalina Channel with a second unit crew um, that uh, Dino had leased from a, um, a Norwegian shipping magnet who was married to Sonia Henney and that's how he got this tanker and so I'm up there in the wheelhouse of the 900 foot long tanker with extras running up and down the deck 
pretending that they're doing stuff as the second unit director is doing helicopter shots of the ship passing by and stuff. Um, yeah, eye-opening stuff. Yeah. Um, so then what happened after that, after you wrapped on that, that film? Well, um, the next film that came along was a B movie that a friend of mine who was the assistant director on called me up around Christmas of 1976 and said, look, I really want to spend Christmas with my family. I've been away for months. Would you consider coming down and taking over the show? And I didn't want to. I was so burned out from Ken Kong. I couldn't believe it. It was a year of shooting. Um, but I heard the tone of his voice and I went down and worked on this crazy science fiction movie with Joan Collins and, you know, all these amazing people. And it, things then kept happening. I had worked with a director named Penelope Spheris. Mm, yeah. Well, I actually had um, worked with her way before that on a film where she was in the cast and we got along really well. And then she started doing the early version of music videos and hired me as a grip and an editor. I wound up editing Albert Brooks's Saturday Night Live short videos that he wow. made. So Albert and Penelope and I all went on to do the first movie that Albert Brooks ever directed called Real Life. And uh, so I was the assistant director on that. And then things just started coming. At the end of 33 years, I'd never thought about it. But when I looked back on it, I had never gone out and looked for a job. I had never gone out and said, hey, um, I hear you're looking for, um, do you think you might? Here's my resume. That never happened. Wow. Yeah, I was you're one fortunate. unlucky guy, but I think I think your reputation of being the guy who could come in at the last second and, you know, make it make it work really uh, worked for you. Yeah, I, I you know, it, it's always hard to know. I mean, I wrote in this Irish Times article that, you know, there were phone calls coming in for directors and I had no idea how they got my name or how they even knew I existed. I just I didn't understand that there's a whole network behind the scenes of directors talking to each other about things, you know. Mm -hmm. And how about, uh, so you worked on a lot of Robert Zemeckis films. So how did, did you get involved with him? I got a call asking if I would like to come in an interview with Bob and, and Bob Gale and Neil Canton um, about Back to the Future. It they set up the interview at Amblin, Steven Spielberg's place at Universal and it was in a conference room and they just these three guys just were sitting around on couches with their feet up you know totally relaxed um just chatted with me and then um started telling me a little bit about the film which I could tell right away was going to be an extremely ambitious and cool film and then Bob he really did this I still can't believe it he said hey Dave um, why don't you get up there on that conference table and show us a little bit about how you assistant direct? <laughs> and I said, oh, you guys really are crazy, aren't you? And they all started laughing. And then Bob turned to Bob Gale and looked at him and looked at Neil Kent and turned back to me and said, so how'd you like to go along on this ride with us? And that's how I got the job. Wow. Um... <laughs> <laughs> So 
working on you know that film what was the vibe like did you have an idea that you're making you know this do you know when you're making a classic movie that's going to stand the test of time like that do you have okay. any inkling or no here is it i can i can i can tell you about what i thought the first thing that i noticed was that Bob, almost all of bob's crew had worked with him previously on romancing mm -hmm. the stone so they all had their shorthand down and and so it took me a while to find out how I would best fit into, you know, this obviously harmonious and 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 um, tightly working machine that they had going. The other thing I noticed was that they had a, a wonderful sense of humor with everybody, and it, and that one trait that this crew seemed to have made a lot of the really hard stuff that came later easier because everybody was so forgiving with each other so personable it, that was a, a, an outstanding hallmark of all three of those films um when we got started um casting and stuff there was a, a gigantic side trip going on trying to figure out who marty mcfly would be and right. the studio was involved they were very heavily pushing eric stoltz right. they were sure he was going to become a big star because of his movie the mask uh, which he was, he was a terrific actor, but um, I don't think that's what Bob had in mind. I mean, Bob and I at that point did not have the kind of relationship where he would talk to me about stuff like that. I had to glean it all as I went along. Um, but he was, but he was very open, very affable. Anybody who had a question in the preparation of the films always could go straight to him. They didn't have to kind of make an appointment. They could just go straight at it. He loved that. He'd answer their questions. But there was a long process where the producers and he were away from the company getting ready because they had to go through this gigantic hiring process. But then once we began shooting, um, we clicked. Um, the whole crew really clicked. The cast clicked. There were subtle difficulties going on in the beginning with, with Eric and with um, Crispin Glover they were just little things you would see that bob was a little uncomfortable he had some tells that uh, i learned uh, to watch for and you could see that sometimes things weren't going exactly how he wanted he was very precise he knew exactly what he wanted um he um was able to visualize shots in a way that i'd never heard before when he told me about it he could actually close his eyes and watch the shot that he wanted to do as though he were watching a finished film. It was like a screen would come up in front of him when he closed his eyes and he would watch the shot and he would adjust things um, if things didn't seem to time out right. And he'd done this with the whole film. He'd actually thought out, visualized the whole film before he started. He did with all three Back to the Futures. This is what he told me later, much later. So he basically previs the whole movie in his brain. Yeah, awesome. and and that's a prodigious feat for anyone to do, even do a day shooting like that. But to do a film, a whole film like that, and have it in mind, I've never heard of that. Now it doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but I'd never heard of it. So then you know we made a switch to Michael Fox. That was a whole dramatic situation that happened while we were shooting out at the mall in La Puente, where the car goes back to the future for the first time. Um, in the middle of the night, they told us to take a long lunch hour, that there were some things going on, and they would explain everything afterward. And we'd heard rumors that there was something going on. We didn't know what. 
or at least I didn't know what. Um, and then they came back and announced that Eric was not going to be working on the film anymore and that um, we were going to be meeting a new actor of the, oh, after the weekend. And that night we finished doing shots of Chris Lloyd talking offstage to someone that nobody had ever met on the crew. Um, and then when Michael Fox came in and was introduced to the crew, it was like a bright light went on. Um, it changed the entire atmosphere of the set. And we knew at that point that even though we had to go back and shoot everything we'd done with Eric before, and that was pretty arduous in the time constraints we had, but we knew at that point, I think, that this was going to be something that had a chance, always just a chance. You never yeah. know how a film is going to be. Yeah, I, I've seen pictures of Eric Stoltz like next to Christopher Lloyd in the costume and everything on the set. And it's so it's so just it's so discordant of what, you know, I grew up watching that movie over and over and over again. It's like an alternate re it's like an alternate reality, like a multiverse. Of well, what he, if. he was very method about it mm -hmm. and very kind of angst ridden teenage, you know, acting and made everybody call him Marty wouldn't, you know, answer to Eric and it, it just it didn't have, I mean, Michael Fox, you know, acted, became Marty the way you and I breathe. I mean, he knew that kid knew what Bob wanted, you know, they, they just clicked so fast. It was just really a crazy turnaround. Um, and uh, they never wavered the whole way through. Uh, I mean, all three films, those, yeah. those two guys and Chris Lloyd yeah. clicked. I mean, yeah, Chris, that's like perfect casting all around. And Michael um, J. Fox yeah. is just so charismatic. And to, to tie everything back to Tales from the Crypt, which we'll get to, Michael J. Yeah. Fox um, directed an episode. It's like one of his only directing oh, credits. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's one of his only directing credits oh, um, with uh, Bruce McGill and uh, Bruno Kirby. Uh, it's a great episode. I'll, I'll tell you. Oh, that's um, so cool. I'll no, to, I had no I'm idea. blanking on the name off the top of my head. I can, I can look it up really easily. But uh, it's a great episode. I can send you a link to watch it because it's a really fun one. I will look um, for it. I had no idea. Yeah, it's, like I said, it's one of those only directing credits. Um, all right. And then um, which, where should we go from here? So, well, you know, you uh, do Back to the Future. You do yep. um, I, I Retro Rap. I know where to go. Okay, go ahead. I'm going go to I'm go to Tales of the Crypt. Okay, we'll, we'll jump ahead. But I do want to talk about Who Framed Roger Rabbit. <laughs> all right, we'll do that then. Go ahead. We'll do okay. that. Well, well, two things. One is, you know, I grew up watching, you know, back when back when I was growing up in the mid '80s. You know, we had a, a VCR, and that's just one of those movies I just watched like on repeat because it's just so captivating. And then, you know, when COVID hit, movie theaters were renting out the theater. He was like for a hundred bucks, um, you could rent out the entire theater and take, you know, a, a group of people, a small group of people in. So we were, you know, we didn't go out anywhere, so we had some uh, extra income at the time. So like, okay, we'll do it. Um, my kid, I had twins, I think they were probably at that time six and, you know, oh. like, let's go show them back to the future on the big screen. Oh. And it was just me and my wife and my kids. And they were kind of really intimidated by the theater. And, but we told them you have the entire theater. You can run around, you can sit wherever you want. You can change seats every minute. We don't care. Oh, so stay in the theater. Good for you. And then, uh, you know, the kind of kind of opening came on with the clocks and it's, it's a little tense and everything. And I could tell they were kind of nervous about it. Like, what is this? 
And then when he plugs in that the guitar and it blows up, they start cracking up. <laughs> they like fell on the floor laughing. They got and, him. Yeah, it had them, yeah. and they just were into it the entire time. And like I said, they can just sit like you know in in the in the, the hallway, the passageway, you know, where everyone walks through to get to the other side. And yeah, yeah, it was it was a really magical. Uh, oh God, that's a wonderful story. So, how old are your kids now? Now, now they're eight. Buddy, you got your hands full. <laughs> yes. I mean, I understood the minute you told me it was back to school night or something or whatever. Yeah. That was, I was like, the whole thing came back. I have two kids. They're in their 20s now. But I, it all came back. I was like, dude, anytime you can break free, it's okay. You know, yeah. I get it. Um, but, and um, then I, I, and actually, I have an older son um, who's, who splits time with me. And he uh, had never seen Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So I showed that to him. Um, I think he was 15 at the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, I think he's old enough to get both sides of the jokes. Cause again, sure. that's a movie as a kid, I watched it and I got, and I'm like, Oh, cool. Cartoons, you know, action and yeah. everything. But as you get older, you start getting the, the, the other side of the jokes. Um, and that's just another movie. That's like the script. It's just perfect. And it's just so well it done. And the effects hold up so well. So tell me about your work on who framed Roger rabbit. Well, you know, uh, let's see. I think that was after back to the future too. I think it was, no, that it, wasn't. it was after back to the future and and i don't know i got a call and said hey dave you know we're we're gonna do this other thing and we're gonna do part of it in la and we're gonna do part of it in in england you know what do you think you know how bob talks and i said of course i jumped on it well they took a section of downtown la and made it back into the 40s it was unbelievable and um they had a streetcar you know, a whole complete streetcar line put in. They had all these old cars, you know, everybody, unbelievable period wardrobe. And so we did all the exterior live action stuff with Bob Hoskins, who was an amazing person and somehow understood that Bob needed to have him be able to act to something that wasn't there, you know, and kind of picked it up pretty quickly. I mean, I think um bob it, it, you know was the perfect person for that because he's technically adept and understands things that are coming not that are here to be used but things things that are available now but nobody's used before and a lot of that had to do with the way the animation can be used and it happened to be dean cundy dean cundy's one of dean cundy's hobby the cinematographer and he was way into animation and understood a lot of it too so when the two of them started working on it they they were able to work out a lot of stuff quickly um not that easy but but quickly so that when we got into situations where now wait a minute does this mean that the three-dimensional cartoon characters here or how do how do we react and they're dropping a gun you know do we have a real gun on the set or does that an you know you photograph it afterward as an element or I mean there were a lot of things to work out like that that we had to do on the fly um but we did um they did um I I manage things you know I coordinate things I facilitate things but they did it you know the crew did it um so it was it was very cool and especially just establishing the mood of the 40s the same way that they did with hill valley the uh the production design on those shows was was really strong and when you dropped into these sets it gave you the feel 
of the times and the atmosphere, you know, the background people working and the actors, the feel of the times. And it made it easier for everybody to kind of give off the, the, the emotions and the, the way that people talked and moved at the time. It was, it was very cool. And then, you know, they all, um, they only took very, very uh, key crew people, the cinematographer, the gaffer and stuff to Britain. Um, I did not go. And, um, you know, they, they just went and took over all these stages and, and worked their butts off and um, came up with a, a really good film, really unusual film, too. Really, really, I remember watching it the first time. And it's just like, wowie, you know, there's a lot of stuff here. And you start looking at how they put some of the scenes together and stuff. It's very complex for the time. Yeah, again, I, again, I saw that movie, The Theater, as a kid, and to me, you just accept it all. <laughs> you know, it's just like, sure. oh, okay, of course, me this, too. Is, me too. This, is, this is what's yeah. happening. And then and as I'm watching it now, this time, I'm like, wait, how, do, how are they doing all this? You start questioning everything, but you still are enthralled by it. One of my favorite um, stories I've read that Bob Hoskins' kids were mad at him because he got to hang out with Mickey Mouse and uh, Bugs Bunny and didn't get to <laughs> and didn't introduce his kids to these characters, these assumed. <laughs> I never heard that. That's terrific. But that, they assumed they were just coworkers <laughs> on the set, and they never got uh, to meet them. They were mad. Oh, I just love that. Oh, I can't wait to tell my wife that. That is terrific. I love that. <laughs> um, and again, we're t- just to make another connection to Tales from the Crypt. You have Charles Fleischer doing the amazing voice acting, who went on to you know star in the one of the Tales from the Crypt movies and be in one of the yeah. episodes. He and was- actually, I got to meet him at a convention recently. He's such a nice guy. Yeah, and you know how wired he is then, because man, that guy it was on fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, every time we were around him, and he was just so wound up and so energetic and so into it, and it would really people were like, "Dude, whoa, 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 whoa!" You know, what are you saying? What, what, what do you need? What, what you know? It was just like, "Woo!" He was into it. You know, even Bob was just like, "Wow, <laughs> go, Charles!" <laughs> what um. <laughs> How did you, were you part of that casting process? Were there other actors you were considering? I was never a part of any casting process. Okay. That's not what I do. Um, that is strictly the casting agency, mm-hmm. the producers, the director, maybe sometimes a couple of other people, but very rarely anybody like me. No. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. All right. Now let's talk about some tales. Um, so you were brought on as the first assistant director for all and all through the house. How did that well, come about? No, it's a, oh, it's a completely okay. yes, yes, but in a in a backdoor way. Okay. Um, we got a call. Uh, the the Bob's crew all got a call saying, "Hey guys, we're gonna we want to do Back to the Future too." I think this was 1989. I know it was. Uh, it was like I got the call. I think in. August 1989, and they wanted to start prepping Back to the Future 2 in, I want to say, October. And so the whole crew amassed at Universal. Um, We began breaking down a a gargantuan script. And suddenly we were told that the, uh, the film, that Back to the Future, was going to be put on hold for a while. And... You know, so we all kind of wondered, each in our own way, you know, okay, so what does that mean? Do we look for another job? What if we're offered another job in the meantime? Do we go? Do we wait? 
how do we afford to wait? And then Bob called a bunch of us in, you know, Dean Cundy and me and Mark Walthour and all these different guys, you know, the key crew people and said, Hey guys, you know, um, how'd you like to go and do, um, a, a TV show that I've been asked to do? And we're all like, what do you mean? And he said, well, I'm going to do this little thing. It's called Tales of the Crypt. And it's, it, you know, it's kind of one of the early shows and we'll just, you know, it'll, you know, you guys then can stay on the clock with us, you know, and, and stay together and, and I'll have my crew and we'll go out there and just knock this thing out in a couple of days. And, and it'll be really good. And in the meantime, you know, I'll work out the things that are going on with Back to the Future 2. Well, what was going on with Back to the Future 2 was that the Bob went to the studio and said, the movie needs to be two movies. There's too much in here. And the studio balked. And that's at the point where we um, get pause. And so while those negotiations were going on, Bob and this, his whole crew essentially went over to a, a warehouse in, um, out by Magic Mountain, um, you know, not a stage, low ceilings, no perms, a cement building with a cement floor. And we began to do uh, Tales from the Crypt. Mary Ellen Trainer, Bob's wife at the time, was starring in it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it had to have snow and it had to have all these things in it. But the stage was so, it was like almost airtight, didn't have very good air conditioning. Um, when we had to make it snow, they used this cotton material that would come down and it would stick to everything. Um, but and Bob, you know, in his way, shot the film as though he were shooting a feature and not TV. I mean, I'd done some TV early on. I did a couple of Chips episodes because I wanted to know how TV worked as opposed to how features work. Well, TV works a hell of a lot faster, which you know. Their schedules are much shorter. Bob shot this like a feature. He, I, I can't remember how long it took, but it was no, nowhere near the schedule that we were told that it had to be in. It was like way over. And he, you know, he wanted it lit the way he wanted it. He wanted the effects to be as good as he could get them. And um, I, I think it took like nine days to shoot instead of five or something. Yeah, I mean, that was the big directive when they were first making Tales of the Crypt, that we want a TV show that looks like a movie. Well, like, at least in this episode, they got it. I didn't watch a lot of the episodes, mm-hmm. but, but I think Bob got what he wanted. What we got, what everybody in the crew got, I think, including Bob, was you know, from that fake snow, everybody got sick. We all got lung mm. infections. <laughs> everybody had these honking coughs and runny noses at the end of it. And, and um, I just remember, and it was suffocatingly hot because we had to light it well, you know, but the lights in a place like that with that, that are low down, very hot. Um, but everybody did well. And I, th- I thought, you know, the way Bob did it was, was interesting. Um, it's, it's interesting to watch a husband and wife team work, you know, that's a whole other <laughs> layer that goes over, you know, doing uh, filming. So that was something. Um, you remember working with uh, Larry Drake as the I do. Santa? Yeah, I do. He, he was great. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he, he was one of those people who was 
you'd never know was there until it was time to you, time to have him be on stage. I mean, he never asked for anything. There was never any problem. It was always ready to go. And then he just jumped in and do this terrifying, you know, you know blow everybody's socks off. You know, it was crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we that's one of our favorite um, on the podcast. One of our favorite episodes, and the, oh. especially especially the Larry Drake character is just so oh, deranged over the top. It. He had and, so much fun. Yeah, you just look. At, <laughs> we love it when people choose scenery on the show because that, that's just, it's kind of tailored for that. And he actually. So he was in the second episode of the first season, I believe. In the last episode of the second season, he he plays another role as a congenial butler, um, as like a very nice, soft man. We're like, how is this the same? Oh person? wow, one eighty from yeah, from a killer Santa Claus. I yeah, it. yeah. So we're yeah, he was he's such an underrated actor. Um, and actually, I was just looking up the episode that uh, Michael J. Fox did. It's called The Trap, and I forgot it also has James Tolkien in it. That's like a, a bit role. So uh, he's bringing some friends along for that one. Sure. As he should. I mean, James is uh, the man you want around if you want, uh, you want a characterization. Yeah. Who's also, James. again, in another one of my favorite like childhood movies from the eighties was the masters of the universe movie. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought sure. I was a huge fan of that as a kid. And he's just, again, he plays the yeah. same role over and over again, but he just does it so well. Yeah. And top gun and top gun. Yeah. On yeah. and on and on. I mean, same guy. You know, it's like, Jeez, what's Strickland doing on an aircraft carrier? <laughs> yeah, we need a Strickland. That's what we need. We should need a Strickland multiverse movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, or like a multi-generational. Um, yeah. But anyway, so so Tales from the Crypt came along perfectly for us um, and, and gave Bob the time he needed to go through the negotiations. And I think it turned out to be a pretty good episode. Um, and it was a lot of fun to do. I mean, it was hard work because of the conditions, you know, it just, it wasn't the ideal place to shoot something like that. But beyond that, I mean, okay, so what, you know, get going. And so we all did. I mean, it, there was a little bitching and moaning because we're used to movies with big, you know, big stages and a lot of room and being able to bring in. And then we're in this little place, you know, so it was hard for the gaffer, hard for the mm. grips and, you know, hard for Dean Cundy. But they're big boys and girls. They all did it, you know. Right. Well, I think that's one of the, that's one of the things that was really interesting about Tales from the Crypt was that it almost became like a playground for filmmakers and their crew yes. to try to, to go into a different scenario and just try things, see what worked, what didn't. And I agree. Hopefully and, and they the, came out better for it. And much needed places like that. The only other one I can remember during that time was Fallen Angels, that series. Um, also gave a lot of people chances to go out and and see if that was something that appealed to them directing or doing you know cinematography or whatever and yeah i tales from the crypt gave a lot of people uh, a chance to do something a little different mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and then and, uh and i also didn't understand that bob was one of the partners in it oh. you know? so <laughs> he had a lot vested in it as well as doing a good job on on the directing part he had other things above that, you know, invested in it, which I, you know, I thought was great, you know. Um, and then uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, Back to Future 2 and 3. So what were the challenges of doing a back-to-back -back movies? Wow. Well. Uh, in benefits. Well, we started, I think we started shooting in January of 1990. And we finished, I want to say, uh, at least a year later. And we had, I think, a week off or two weeks off. I think it was 10 days or something between the films. 
And the first part of Back to the Future 2 had a tremendous amount of nights in it. So that what we had to do with Michael Fox was because I think he was still doing the television show at that time, we couldn't do just straight nights all the time. We had to start on Mondays doing day stuff and then roll slowly around to nights so that when Michael finished his taping in midweek, then we could use him longer at night. And then we'd wind up going Friday nights into way deep into Saturday morning and then have to roll back to starting mm. at seven o'clock in the morning on Monday. So that was a challenge for everybody. But I mean, the, the film itself uh, was much darker than Back to the Future, the original Back to the Future. And I remember being surprised by that. You know, there was a lot of really stark stuff in it that was like, yeah. wow. I mean, there's stuff in there that isn't in the movie that we did. We did one night with a seriously real motorcycle gang. Um, uh, that, I mean, these guys were, you know, they were real. And so when you'd go up and ask them to do stuff, you had to be really careful how you worded it because they they take offense at, you know, what are you talking, you know, what are you talking about, man? You know, so I, you know, just from a production standpoint, it had a lot of elements in it that were really, really tricky, really fun. Um, but it was a very, very busy film. Um, they worked out a lot of things on the fly again, even though Bob had a good idea of what he wanted. Um, there were things that, that needed to change on the day because of difficulties that came up and he, they would always come up with things. That was the first time that we used what they called at the time, the Tandro camera, which was a motion control camera that had been developed up at ILM. And at the point we were using, it, it was extremely new. So, and it allowed Chris Lloyd, for instance, to be able to talk to himself, you know, mm -hmm. so, so we'd film one side with Chris Lloyd, and then we'd film another side with Chris Lloyd in another time period talking to him. But every once in a while, we would get caught and it would be too late in the day to do the second part of it. And the first time that happened, I remember Bob got really uptight. He said, man, this is not good. He said, you know, we're going to come back tomorrow. And if anything changes, minutely we have to do everything again and that night wouldn't you know it there was a, a small earthquake oh no and we did have to go back and do both sides again the next day because it just altered things enough where they couldn't get the registration perfect and it had to be perfect um so there was a lot of um experimentation with things like that going on and then experimentation with chris trying to figure out how to play off himself you know that was very difficult i think for him, a big challenge. Um, but, you know, all through these films, uh, something that uh, not a lot of people talk about, except in one certain way, which is, oh, man, what a bully he is. But Tom Wilson anchored so much of these movies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hardly any anybody really talks about that. I actually made a chapter in my book about it because I was always so amazed at how prepared he was, how into it he was, how easy he was off stage, how, you know, just really made everything. Perfect. But 
he, you know, so much of the movie, you know, rose and fell on this threat that he presented to them, you know, and as I wrote in my book, I mean, we all have biffs in our lives, you know, Yeah. Totally. and that most people when they're watching the movies, I, I don't know if this is the stuff you want to get into, no, yeah, totally. you know, but well, most people watching the Back to the Future movies know that it's Michael Fox playing Marty, they know that it's Chris Lloyd playing Doc. But you know, when when Tom Wilson comes on, you kind of forget there's an actor inhabiting that guy. That's just some guy who comes onto the screen that, you know, blows stuff up and makes stuff dangerous. And I always kind of thought that was remarkable, you know, how he was able to do that. And Bob took great advantage of it, used him well, I thought. Yeah, um, he's, he's one of the all-time antagonists because he is just so real. And, you know, we all kind of knew someone like that or grew up with someone like that. Um, yeah. And it I, I, it's, it's the kind of thing where I wonder if, like, he goes to the grocery store and people just give him dirty looks. Absolutely. I, I mean, I know for sure he told me. And it blew up his career pretty much. I mean, mm -hmm. because nobody could ever see him outside that part of Bill. Right. I think he was in the movie The Miracle. The, about the eighties uh, U.S. hockey team as like one of the, as like the Maybe. nice coach. <laughs> it took me Maybe. a while to yeah. uh, accept know, so that. Well, wow, what's Biff doing coaching a hockey team? You know, I mean, it's just um, no. I I did. I called him. I hadn't talked to him in in decades, and I got his number from a friend. And I called him and I said, "Hey, could I? You know, I want to write about you." And he said, "Why?" And I said, "Well, because I want to talk about what I liked about what you did in the films." So he. You know, he we talked for I don't know half an hour or so, but he was so accommodating and so fun and so interesting, the same way he was back then. But he'd make these amazing shifts and he'd walk on. You know, he'd just like make everything dangerous. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I I um I really liked that part. Then we had a week or ten days off, and people were literally weeping when we had to start Back to the Future Three because everybody's so exhausted when we started. And we started up in outside of Jamestown and Sonora, up in gold country and the Sierra Nevadas. They built this amazing town um, that the insides of the exteriors were working sets. When they had a bar that you saw from the outside, if you went in, that was the working set for the bar. And so, you know, Doc's, Doc's warehouse or whatever it was that he lived in was the actual set. We didn't have to go anywhere else and do anything. So that was really cool. We could make things really work well, you know, people coming outside and having it all working. Um, the fact of doing a Western in itself was unbelievably cool. And they really went for realistic. They got really good wranglers on it and, you know, real cowboys. I mean, not just these, you know, anyway, real cowboys. Um, Tom Wilson went to school on how to rope and ride and use a gun and do all these things authentically so that he looked realistic the same with um, Michael. And once we got into that Western milieu, um, it, you know, it, it was a difficult film. We had a huge second unit on that one. Everything happened to do with the train without the characters on it, you know, all the stunt doubles and everything, a gigantic second unit that um we were lucky we had, didn't have anybody hurt i mean they were using a railroad that was the tracks were not in great repair um they're using an old steam engine which had all the vulnerabilities of an old steam engine um and everything went pretty well 
I mean, it, it, it was, Bob was so busy at that point, he would film during the day in, um, on the set, go to the airport in the evening, fly to Los Angeles, edit Back to the Future 2, wow. get back on a plane, come back up. We'd set up the first shot for him in the morning, and then he'd come in from the airport, and we'd roll the cameras and start shooting. It, I don't know how he did that. Did um, here, Here's the question. Did Bob ever, or the other writers, ever talk about why they chose to do the Western, like, of all the time period? Because he could go anywhere, you know, um, in no. the past. I mean, it, it, makes, think, it makes a lot of sense. Well, I'm, I'm good friends with Bob Gale now. I mean, we go mm -hmm. out to breakfast and stuff. And the, the sense that I got from him was, like, wouldn't it be cool to do a Western? Yeah. Always want to do a Western. Well, why don't we do a Western? Kind of, that's kind of how it came up. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was a strategic move or anything. Yeah. I mean, um, it makes sense because if you're going to want to keep it in Hill Valley, but you want to go into the past, but you can't go too far else, you know, obviously there, there wouldn't be anything there. Um, and, you know, Westerns are fun. Um, yeah. But, you know, I think, I think you'll get a kick out of this. When I was, uh, again, as a kid, uh, you know, a little bit older than that in the early 90s, you know, we didn't have the internet or anything or I just wasn't like reading papers. So I didn't know that there would be a third movie. So to me, the ending of Back to Future 2 was the end. Yeah. And I was like heartbroken. And then this trailer comes out for Back to Future 3. I'm like, oh, wait, there's a third one? And like, I yeah. went through this whole roller coaster. It's like the only thing I could think of is like, you know, when kids when kids now would watch like the Avengers, you know, the the uh, Infinity War yeah. into Endgame, that kind of thing, where it's like, wait, that's it? We, we lost? I remember being in the theater to see Back to the Future 2 and seeing that trailer come up. People freaked out. Yeah. You know, because they were all like, oh, man. And then, wah! <laughs> you never seen it like great. that before. Oh, it was fun. Yeah. To be continued or something, didn't they say? Or something uh, like to that. To be concluded. To be concluded, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was the line. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, those movies changed my life. They were the best movies I ever worked on as far as a... Um, you know, everybody working in this toward the same thing in the same way. The harmony on that show. I mean, yeah, there were hard, there were rough spots and all that. There always are, but the the group effort on that show, I, I was something like uh, you rarely get to see, and, and especially you you rarely get to see it three times. You know, or mm -hmm. four counting Roger Rabbit. Right. All right. Well, I mean, we could talk about movies all day long, but. Um... Just to okay. confirm, did you work on any of other uh, Robert Zemeckis's uh, Tales episodes, like Yellow, no. which is my personal favorite, or uh, no. You Murderer? After Back to the Future Three, uh, our schedules never never coincided again, and mm -hmm. he found another assistant director that he liked a lot and used him from then on. Mm -hmm. And um, I understood, you know, um, th there's. There's loyalty to a point in films, but there comes a time when you, if you have to go, you got to go. And, um, but Bob was, was very good with me. Um, and I worked my ass off for him. I mean, that was a mutually, you know, beneficial association. I think I really respected him. Um, I thought he, uh, I, I mean, anybody who could come up with stories like that and make them live, that's those are my guys you know and bob gale and and bob zemeckis when i read the script the first time the first back to the future script i sat down you know assistant directors when they first get a script they do what they call lining it out 
and they draw a line between every um, scene, the every, and it, each scene has a number, and then you break down the scene, depending on how many eighths of a page it is, what elements of props are in it, what characters and what happens in it, what else is the scene going to need? And it's, it's called a script breakdown, which you then use for scheduling. By the time I got into like the sixth or seventh page of the thing, I wasn't doing any lining out or anything. I was just reading. Mm-hmm. And I remember when they got to the point where, you know, Doc pulls the car out and he's talking about how it's going to work and what it is. I thought, you know, that, that sounds like you could do it. You know, and I, at, I remember at that point I was hooked. I, I got, I got that these guys had come up with something that had the possibility of being special, but you never know. I mean, there is no way anybody can predict. They shopped that script around for three years. I think mm-hmm. nobody would take it. Right. They, they thank you very much. You know, next. Yeah. So. I- yeah. yeah, I read a book about '80s movies, and a lot of it talked about how um, they a lot of them cap. There's a whole like subsection you could call it that capitalizes on nostalgia from the '40s and the '50s, mm-hmm. and I think that's something that's kind of permeating in that era. That I don't know if anyone quite got at the time until kind of you kind of saw it, like skipping yeah. over the turbulent '60s and the aftermath of the '70s, yeah, kind of going back to quote unquote, you know happier America. Well, I lived through the fifties, you know, and it, it it was, it, you know, it's pretty idealistic in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways. No, no wars going on, no personal threats, no drug problems, no political problems per se. I mean, nothing like the context of today. It was, it was, it was like that vanilla, you know, decade in there. Just like, nothing really happened except like little kids grew up and and became like older kids and kind of went on yeah it was weird and it was fun to recreate because mm-hmm. i remembered it you know so i'd get extra yeah. to do stuff you know yeah that's fun nice um so let's talk about uh tell me about your book because the, the I, I obviously i haven't read the book but i did see that article from huffington post i don't know if that's like the jumping off point for the book so t- kind of tell me about your book Okay, I, you know, and if you like, um, Jason, I'd be glad to send you a PDF of it. I don't even have a copy now. I don't have any <laughs> copy. I don't know if the book exists. Honest to God, I have one friend. His name is Jim Planet. He's a very famous gaffer. He saw it appear on Amazon when I was talking about it like three weeks ago, and he ordered it. He has Amazon Prime. He went boom. He hit the button. He got the book last week. Seriously? Nobody else. Nobody has the book nobody that's hilarious (laughs) yeah we're still trying to figure out how that happened the book did not set out to be a book in around 2004 i had finished the 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 um what was it which one was the all the king's men was the last one i worked on i went to a pta raffle for my daughter's school my daughter at that point had just turned seven and it was a PTA raffle where they have sign-up sheets. You're gonna, you better, um, you're gonna find out if you don't know, um, and and you sign up and you bid on all these items, and and each person who signs under a person raises the bid. You know about that, right? Do you do that? Yeah, you no, know? I I, I want to keg a beer that way once because <laughs> <laughs> no one else signed up for it. But okay, 
All right, here, now here is another, this is like the long arm of destiny reaching in on all this. Listen to this. I still can't believe it. I see my wife on tiptoes across one of these big rooms where all these items are on tables, and she's signing the top line of one of the sheets. And a few minutes later, I ran to her, I said, so what did we just buy? She goes, oh, don't worry. She said, I'm just getting the bidding started. Nobody started the bidding. I just signed the top line. Right. I don't remember what it was. I think it was two free gymnastics lessons, something. And we didn't think about it. We went through the whole night. We bid on a couple of things. At the end of the evening, everybody gathers together. They announce the winners. Nobody bid on two free gymnastics lessons, and that's yeah. what we won. Yeah that's, yeah, that's how I won the keg of beer. <laughs> same exact same scenario. A week later, I go to my daughter, seven years old. Uh -huh. She eats her meal standing up, does her homework standing up, termed a high-energy child. I said, Natalie, how would you like to go out to the gym? And, and see if maybe the two free gymnastics lessons would appeal to you. She goes, okay. My wife and I take her out. We're put in the parents' viewing area. They take Natalie out onto the gym floor. She's looking at the artistic gymnastics, balance beam, um, you know. And there's a girls' team practicing, and Natalie's watching, and she's like this high. I mean, nothing, bean pole. Across the room, there's a woman leaning against the wall, a coach with her jaw jutted forward, watching every move Natalie makes. I'm not kidding. Never took her eyes off her. Every move. I, I saw her and it kind of spooked me. She she appeared beside us a few minutes later and she said, um, is, is, that, is that your daughter? And we said, yeah. She said, I wonder if she would take one of those free gymnastics lessons with me. I coach rhythmic gymnastics. And I think I could do something with that girl. Natalie was in the Rio Olympics in 2016. Wow. That's how it started, though. Because no I, one else bid on this one item. <laughs> yes. And when Natalie went to take this one lesson, she never looked back for 12 years. And I never went back to films. I became her assistant director. I picked her up after school. I took her to her practice. I waited while she practiced. I took her home. Um, and then we talked to school until letting her out at noon because she had to have more practices as she um, arose in the rankings and everything. She won uh, five out of six regional championships on the West Coast when she competed on the West Coast. She was asked to go on to the national team um, in 2012, I had to move with her to Chicago for four years while they trained her for the Olympics. Um, I, you know, they had us fly her and her coach to Bulgaria, to um, Slovenia, and to um, um, the Czech Republic to see if she could handle the pressure before they asked her to go on to the national team. I had to pay for all of that. that. The whole sport is parent funded. So I had to fly her, her coach, me, and a US judge over to these international competitions to see if she would qualify. But you know, these doors opened gradually. I had no idea, nobody did. It changed the whole dynamic of our family. Our son had to have his ass dragged around for years and years, going to weekend meets all over the West Coast. He gave up all his time. He got a four-year fully funded college scholarship to Cooper Union so that he didn't cost us any money. Um, I mean, it was a pretty amazing experience. That whole time, I was spending 
immense hours of time in the gym. And I, after three years, I said, you know, you better figure out something to do here. You can't just sit here on the computer and read the news and watch girls work out. You better, you better figure out a strategy here because this looks like it's going to happen. She's, this kid's not going to back off. So I joined a gym myself. That was the first thing I did to keep the physical side of things up because I'd spent 33 years on my feet. I was in good shape. I was used Mm -hmm. to running around and now I was vegging. And I began to write down things that I loved about my work for my kids who were too little to understand why I was gone all the time when they were little. And that's how it started. And I, I wrote on and off from 2012 to about 20, 18 or 19, we came back in 2016 after the Olympics, and Natalie went on right straight on to college. Uh, she came home from the Olympics. Two days later, we moved her into her dorm room. She said, Daddy, do not tell anybody that I was in the Olympics. I, if I'm going to make friends, I don't want to make friends because they think I'm an Olympian. And uh, never looked back, never thought about going back and competing again, just went straight on into college. Wait, so how did she do at the Olympics? Well, they didn't come in well, but it was the first team that ever had even had the chance of going to the Olympics from America. Mm-hmm. They, there were, you know, there were like 30, she was in what they call group rhythm, which was asking five girls doing a routine together. Very complex. Um, nobody had from America had ever come close to competing, to qualifying, and they qualified for the first time. So that was the aim of this first right. test group. They came in, I don't know, nowhere close to the top Mm -hmm. um but the whole experience was just absolutely mind-boggling i just can't even explain to you she spent 58 days of her senior school year overseas competing um you know and got a's um that's you know i mean an amazing kid crazy shit so that's how the writing started well Um, well Real quick, to, just to cap off her story. So then when she went to college, was that the end of her uh, that yes. career? That's, that what, that's what I was saying. She came back from the Olympics, called the uh, USA Gymnastics and said, I want to resign my elite status. Mm-hmm. I'm going to school now. Thank you very much. Bye. Wow. And went to school. That's, that's yeah. amazing. You know what she's doing now? She's working for LA 28 which is the arm of the International Olympic Committee responsible for putting together the 2028 Olympics in LA. They had a year-long fellowship program that they developed um, hiring ex-Olympians from Los Angeles. Somebody told Natalie about it and said, you know, you ought to look into it. Natalie thought, well, that might be interesting. She went through four gigantic Zoom interviews that went on for hours and she didn't understand she was up against 35 other people and she got the fellowship. Mm. She's is, was eight months into the fellowship two weeks ago. They called her in and said, look, at, we want to take you out of the fellowship and offer you a full-time job uh, with us. Never mind the fellowship anymore. We want you to work mm-hmm. in the communications department. That's, yeah. that's what she's doing. Wow. Yeah. She's, she's unusual, but she's a kid. I mean, she never... You know, you would never know it if you looked at her. She's not, uh, she's not a standout person. She's not an extrovert. She, you know, she's just a person who, she wasn't competing against people. She was competing against herself. I yeah. learned a lot from her. She's like a high spirit. Yeah. Person. And my son is a fantastic artist. 
could care less about anything athletically, you know, even remotely inclined. Not he works in a national park up in Point Reyes, um, mm -hmm. clearing trails and building bridges, and loves it. Nice. And um, they're both really good kids. I'm lucky. Wow. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to some fatherhood stuff in a minute. But yeah, go back to your book. So I uh, there was a man named Matt Clark who uh, I met years ago who became a fantastic assistant director. He's a young guy, much younger than me. Everybody is. But he, he was <laughs> he's only in his 40s. And he, he became a revered assistant director and also just a revered friend of mine. I loved him. We got along great. He's a super smart and, and, and uh, person I admired greatly. And I was talking with him one day and I mentioned th that I'd been writing some stuff and he said, Oh my God, he's you got to send it to me. And I said, No, you know, it's, I don't know. He said, please just send it to me. Come on. I'm off. I'm, I'm between shows. Send it to me. He read it and, and, and called me and said, look at, you know, you should make this into a book. And I said, Oh, come on. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, every, I, I don't, he said, David, you know, try, try it, think about it. I showed it to somebody else in the business. They said the same thing. So I then had to do a real head change to try to consider a book. I had to learn writing. I, I you know, I, right. I don't know high school syntax and grammar and tense and stuff. So I did. And then um, a guy, a camera operator, very famous named Nick McLean. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's quite famous. He shot um, um, being there and he became um, Burt Reynolds DP and um, he and I went to high school together. Um, I never worked with him. I never talked with him in the succeeding years, but I called Nick to congratulate him because he'd just written a book that was quite good. And I, and I said, you know, gosh, I've been, you know, I'm thinking about maybe writing a book. And he said, oh, he said, you know, you should talk to the guy who co-wrote the book with me. And I said, what do you mean? He said, this is an amazing guy. He said, his name is Wayne Byrne. He lives in Ireland. He said, you should call him and just, you know, talk with him, see, see what you think. You know, Wayne and I just said, and, and Wayne is literally almost solely responsible for actually getting my head around to really, in a realistic way, thinking about doing a book. He critiqued it. He read it. He was incredibly enthusiastic and unbelievably supportive and smart and knew what he was talking about. I knew I could tell. And we struck, I've never met him in person. Um, and we've done this round robin. I've turned him on to people, you know, that helped him with things. And I sent him when I changed iPhones, he didn't have an iPhone. I said, I am sending you my old iPhone. You have to have an iPhone. You have to be able to FaceTime. So I sent him my phone, you know, and we just hit it off. And he's who wouldn't um, hit it off with Wayne, but we yeah. did. For uh, if that name sounds familiar to our listeners, he's the same guy who we had on our Nightmare on Elm Street special. Um, you know, and I, I found Wayne organically through Instagram, and you know, we've been uh, kind of doing some similar stuff as well as far as helping each other look, getting uh, names and stuff and uh, numbers. And he's actually hooked me up with uh, David here. So again, shout out to Wayne. He's just the nicest guy. He deserves all the, all the um, all the success in the world. Yes, me too. I mean, I I promote him every chance I get. Mm -hmm. And and with good reason because he's worthy. Mm -hmm. um, in Hollywood, everybody promotes everybody, but but that's it's not that way with Wayne. Wayne is 
really good at what he does and really impassioned about um, having people understand how film works. And, and uh, I, I love him. I love mm-hmm. him a lot. Yeah, he's a great, great guy. I keep telling him he used to come on the uh, go on the book tour and come to LA so we can all meet <laughs> we're, up. We're, oh, Nick McLean and I are laying in wait for him if he ever comes over here. He's never been on a movie set. And really? we're like, if he ever comes over here, I, I call Nick, you know, like, we got it. We're going to get him on a set. And he's like, yeah, oh, that's going to be cool. Yeah, you know, that, gonna- that's that's one of my ambitions. I've never, I've been on a location as an extra once for a friend. Yeah. I've never been on a movie set. So I've always wanted to uh, step it, on there. It is an unusual atmosphere. So I'm worried it might like break the illusion for me. <laughs> no. Oh, no, I wouldn't at all. I mean, I, it is an amazing world. Um. Uh, that's what prompted me to write at all because mm. it is a world that people don't see they they think they see it they hear things about it they assume things about it but if you see a fully functioning film going on it is an amazing experience it is mm. and i found it that way almost all the time i went to work mm. i couldn't wait to get there because you never knew what was going to happen mm-hmm. you you thought you knew and most of the times you did know, but there were things that would go on during filming you could never anticipate. And it's all, it is a form of magic. It really is an illusion. And it's really fun to watch it come to life. So let's get some information. What, what's the title of your book? It's called Best Seat in the House, An Assistant Director Behind the Scenes of Feature Films. And who's your uh, publisher? And the publicist is Bear Manor media and the word bear manor is one word bear manor media and uh, the book can be pre-ordered if you go on the bear manor website um just bearmanormedia.com like bear like the animal or be yes bear like the bear like the animal um it it is going to be released on september 19th um and then the ebook is going to release on uh, september 20th um, I have no idea <laughs> what is going to happen. Um, I did announce it on a Facebook group called Crew Stories. Have you ever seen that Facebook group? Mm-mm, I have not. They have 75,000 people on there. So I announced it on there, and it was a pretty rousing um, reception. I was kind of shocked. Everything shocks me now, though. The, the publishing world, as you may know, is opaque. Uh, it's a fog bank for a neophyte or for most anybody it i don't know how things work i don't know how publishing works release dates work what publishers are looking for how typesetting works i mean it's just a whole new world so and i've just gone through part of it this release part is a a whole other part i have no idea how it works or what happens or how to get it out there i'm trying because i think that um you know if people like films it, it's not like telling you know behind the scenes stories of things that people do that make people look bad or the shitty things that happen you know it's not like that at all it's about the things that i that the people i was around that made me love what i did mm-hmm. um you know i mean milos foreman i learned so much from this man and uh, um, you know, Bob Zemeckis, as I said, I mean, Peter Weir, uh, an unbelievably um, magical director, Sidney Pollack, my, right. my second dad, <laughs> 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 you know, really probably the most important mentor I had. I mean, but 
all kinds of people, grips and electricians who taught me so much, um, unit manager, a guy named Michael Hausman, who was a, an amazingly um, important person, a guy named Brian Frankish, who literally got me into the film business in big films. He's who got me hired on King Kong. We're still friends today. Um, I have a, you know, I learned a lot. I, my life's education happened doing films. I mean, that's really kind of it. That's awesome. I, I look forward to uh, checking it out. I, I highly encourage everyone else to uh, check it out as well. Um, all right. So now we're going to move on to our miscellaneous rounds. Sure. Uh, we're going to give you a couple of fun questions. Um, so in the very first episode of Tales from the Crypt, yes. William Sadler plays an executioner. Okay. Kind of narrating the story. In one of the scenes, he walks into a diner and orders a cheese sandwich. Not a grilled cheese, but just a straight cheese on white bread sandwich. Okay. And a cup of coffee. If you were to go into a diner and order a straight cheese sandwich, what cheese would you want on your sandwich? Wow. Okay. Um, probably, probably Swiss. Swiss? Yeah, Swiss cheese. What did he order? Did he, he never said. He oh, just he never said, said cheese okay. sandwich. He just got what they had. He's got what they had, whether it was the surprise. What would you put on a burger or the grilled cheese? Oh, gosh. Onions, relish, tomatoes. Um, um, like you ever go to the counter and get like their specials? Nah, no, nah, just uh, the biggest burger you can get, you know, <laughs> just with all the junk. Do you have a, do you have a burger spot in LA? In and out. Or a sandwich spot? In and out. In and out, yeah. Oh, yeah. Best burgers ever. Yeah. Do you ever go to the hat? Never. Okay. If you like Never pastrami, they have really good. Uh, oh, well, if it's pastrami, I'll go. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're way wired on pastrami. There you go. <laughs> uh, they do, they do a pastrami burger. That's really, really? Good. where is it? Where is it? They're all over. I go, to, obviously I go to the one in Pasadena, but they're kind of all, all right. over. Well, I'm going to write it down. Hold on. The hat. And if you like chili cheese fries, it's huge. It's delicious. Uh, I kind of watch those. <laughs> well, no, those you, you, those you feel dangerous. it. You feel it the next day, but <laughs> okay. um, all right. <laughs> And then, um, you know, again, we're dads to the crypt. We do uh, dad advice, you know, based on our episodes, sometimes kooky, sometimes fun, sometimes poignant. You, you know, sounds like you're an amazing father. Um, what advice would you give to someone about fatherhood? Enjoy it because it's fast. It goes fast. And if you don't, if you don't get with your kids early on, you're never going to have a second chance. It, it, it doesn't come back around. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. I love being a dad more than anything, more than movies, more than anything. It was a privilege. And it was, it's hell on wheels too, of course. <laughs> yeah. but, but that's not the point. I mean, you know, and the other thing I love about it, about being a dad or a parent, is it's like a secret society. There is no way you can imagine having a kid. That, no matter what you read, no matter who you talk to, you cannot imagine what it's like raising a child until you do it. And when you do it, you become in into you're you're inducted into the secret society of parents. Mm. That's the way that. I feel. All right. And then uh, what's up next for you? Now once your book is out, what, what are you itching to do next? I haven't got a country clue. I, I have no idea. Um, this has been a full time thing that I've been focusing on for so long. I mean, I have little hobbies and stuff and I have family. Um, but as I said, I'm 80. So, you know, it's not like I'm going to run out and start a new career, particularly. I might write a, write a follow-up book if anything happens with this one. But, you know, 
I'm just, I just feel so lucky to actually even still be vertical <laughs> and walking around and have the friends I have that, uh, for now that's good enough. That's awesome. Well, that wraps things up. Um, you know, thank you so much for coming on. We're obviously a tell us in the crypt podcast, but to me, yeah. that's really window dressing to talking about parenthood and talking about films and all the other stuff. And yeah, some might look at it and say, Oh, you only did like one deal in the crypt thing, blah, blah. But you know, this has True. been an amazing conversation uh, with a guy who's worked on some amazing movies and, you know, you have some amazing stories and, you know, I really hope that people give this uh, a really good listen and, uh, you know, take away a lot from it. Cause you have a great story to tell and I hope people read your book and, uh, you know, uh, you know, learn more about, you know, some of the golden age of films. Um, something that will have great stuff. Well, thank you for inviting me, Jason. Um, is there any particular places you want people to follow you on the social medias? Well, I'm on Instagram kind of haltingly. I'm on Facebook. Mm -hmm. um, those are the only uh, things that uh, I do in social media. Uh, now, if you're talking about my daughter, she's on everything, but I'm not. Um, so I guess it, it's, it's kind of a small uh, multimedia uh, amount, but that's that's what I do. Facebook mainly. Okay, definitely. Oh uh, yeah, you gotta, you gotta get yourself out there and you gotta start promoting that book. Get those numbers yeah. up. Any suggestions? I'm open. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we appreciate everyone for listening. We really appreciate if you give us a rating review on Spotify. Uh, sorry, rating and review on iTunes and a rating on Spotify. And with that, we thank you for listening to Dads from the Crypt. <laughs> Follow Dads from the Crypt on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or I will follow you to the grave. <laughs> no, seriously, you really should watch. But be careful what you ask for. You may get it. Ha 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 